I was the um, captain of that flight crew. <laughs> My very distinct honor and privilege. And, uh, I was the first one off the airplane. I walked into this uh, waiting crowd of people, and uh, I knew it was all over. Everything was all over. I saw... Um, I saw people uh, from uh, Northwest Airlines there. I could leave my carrier anonymous. I hope by the time I complete this story, you'll understand why I do not. Uh, there were company officials there. There were uh, airport police, and there were FAA officials. <clears throat> and uh, as I walked into this group of people, and they asked me if I was Captain Krauss, and I said yes, and they took me off to the side, and they later, as the other two pilots walked off, they got them also. We were taken upstairs, and uh, we were arrested. Issued a citizen's arrest by the uh, Federal Aviation Authority. Uh, we spent 12 hours that day being detained and questioned by uh, a number of people. At any rate, uh, we spent 12 hours there. It was a day of um, unbelievable events. Uh, throughout most of that day, um, I was in some kind of a deep emotional trauma, and I had many, many um, what, what seemed like out-of-body experiences. There were times when I, I just felt that I was someplace up on the walls or the ceiling and I was watching this whole thing unfold. That this absolutely, it was not possible that this could be happening to me. It simply was not, not possible. And there were other moments when I looked around the room and I thought, my God, this is, it's happening to me and it's happening to me today right now. And, um, the, um, within a very short period of time that day, uh, I was suffering that thing that uh, was described yesterday in the professional lecture, that the shame. The shame was absolutely indescribable, uh, and this was just the beginning of the experience. And um, I, I, as many times as I've spoken, I, I've tried to paint word pictures of it, and I can't. And the, uh, the only thing that comes to me is that phrase that was quoted this afternoon uh, out of the big book, you know, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I mean, it was literally beyond comprehension. Uh, I had not lived my life in such a way I didn't think as to end up in that place at that moment under those circumstances. Um, we gave blood twice at two different facilities. At one of them, a reporter saw uh, three uniformed pilots being escorted by two sheriff's deputies, and he assumed there was a story there, and that was how the media got it. Once the media got it, it stayed in the media on the front pages, all over national television and international television for some three weeks. Uh, at the end of the day, we had given blood. Uh, I had given a sworn statement to a, a Northwest Airlines attorney. Um, I had drawn what I later uh, found out to be one of the most uh, severest, harshest attorneys on that uh, labor relations staff, and yet it is my recollection that he was very soft and kind with me under those particular circumstances. And I later told him so. Um, at the conclusion of the 12-hour day, it was 7 o'clock that night, and that was dark. We were put in a car, and we were driven back across um, the river out there to the from Northwest Airlines headquarters to uh, the airport. And I remember... Uh, there was an assistant chief pilot that drove the fearless back, and I remember looking outside at the blackness of the night and thinking how representative that was of my life at that moment, that all the light had gone out. <coughs> that, um, that literally all the light had been extinguished, that life as I knew it was over. And in fact, it was. 
what I could not know at that point in time was that a new one was beginning. Um, that was that was not uh, that was not something that I could even have comprehended at that moment. Northwest Airlines at that point in time was the only major United States carrier that did not have an alcoholism program in place for its pilots. It was the only one. The uh, old management, the old leadership had um, resisted that, and they said uh, in a very draconian way, we don't have any alcoholic pilots, and if we did, we'd fire them. <clears throat> well, they had alcoholic pilots just like everyone does, just like every profession does. So we hit each other, and we protected each other. And uh, I had seen pilots at Northwest drink and be fired. Anything that had to do with aviation and alcohol at that company was instantly fatal. It was irreversible, uh, and it was fatal. There was no doubt about the outcome. <clears throat> and uh, and I knew what was coming. When I um, got back to the airport, I went over to the commuter apartment that I maintained there in Minneapolis, and I attempted to phone home. And uh, I had forgotten that I was supposed to be home that night, <clears throat> that uh, um, that was supposed to be the end of the trip, Barbara. I had waited some four hours outside uh, the airport waiting for me to come out. I had never come out. She finally gave up and went home. And um, when I called, all I got was the answering machine. And I didn't know what to say. I just didn't know what to say. All I could do was just uh, get some words out and, 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 and in a very soft way and, and say there's been a real disaster and, and uh, I think I've lost my job. And that I would be home uh, to the Atlanta area the following morning on the first flight. The next morning, I suited up. I walked through the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. It was not uncommon to have people turn and look at, at airline pilots when they walked by. But that morning, every time one of them looked, and every, every time someone looked my way, I just knew they knew. And I was just bathed in this shame. I just knew they knew what I had done. And I got on an airplane, and I came home to Atlanta, and I made my way quickly out of the um, Northwest Airlines area. I knew all the Northwest personnel there. I knew the agents, the mechanics, the ground people, uh, the baggage the, uh, handlers, the groomers, I, because I used to sit and visit with them when I was out there on duty. <clears throat> and uh, I was scared to death somebody was going to see me and stop me and want to talk to me, and I didn't, I didn't want any of that. So I exited the area very quickly. Uh, Barbara was waiting for me out in front of the curb, and um, I've never told this story, but what I haven't said that I felt like I literally had to climb over the curb to get in the car, and I could not meet her gaze. I could not look at her. And as I got in and closed the door, all I could say is, honey, I'm so sorry. And uh, as she pulled away from the curb, she said very softly, she said, who better than I could possibly understand how you feel right now? And we drove home in silence. I was absolutely heart sick, just sick. I had not lived my life in such a way, I didn't think, to to end it like this. I knew that within a very short time, my name was going to tear through the airlines like wildfire, like the other pilots who had been fired uh, had done, and I was going to leave in shame and disgrace. And the effort that I had made throughout my entire life had always been to to try to do the best I could at whatever it was I was doing. I had always tried very hard to reflect honor and pride and dignity on those things that I was involved in, whether I was putting on a Marine Corps uniform, whether I was representing my profession, my airline, my heritage, or my family. 
and I knew I had disgraced every single thing that I treasured and cherished and held dear. I had been the standard bearer in my family for things like honor, duty, country, character, honesty, integrity. I had tried to teach my kids to do the right thing, to be honest. And I was looking at this situation and the disgrace that I had brought upon myself and everything else around me, and it was really more than I could handle. Barbara let me out of the house, and she went in, and or she went to work, and I came in, and I called a doctor. And uh, it was a doctor we had been seeing for a couple of years, and um, I said, I've got to declare an emergency. I must see you right away. He cleared his calendar, and within an hour, I was in his office. And I walked in, and I told him what had happened. And he was absolutely stunned. And he said, God, Lyle, he said, this is horrible. He said, this is just horrible. And he made a statement, one of which I was several, one of several I was going to hear later before the day was over that I probably would not understand. And then he turned to the side. I remember him turning to the side just a little bit. And then he said, but maybe this is what had to happen. And I didn't understand that. He left. And he came back a few moments later. And he said, I called a doctor. He's a psychiatrist. I worked with him on staff at a treatment center once. So he is himself a recovering alcoholic and cocaine addict, and he wants to see you at 6 o'clock tonight. This was March the 9th. It was a Friday, and I did not know any doctors who saw patients at 6 o'clock on Friday evenings, especially doctors that were quite prominent in the Atlanta area. So it conveyed, and it told me that they were treating this very seriously. At 6 o'clock that night, Barbara and I drove clear across Atlanta, to this doctor's office. And I went in there, and I, and I cannot tell you how long I was in there. I can't tell you if I was in there 30 minutes or an hour. I can't tell you the first thing he said to me or he asked me. But I do remember is that I was all done. I was devastated. I was absolutely shredded. I, uh, I answered all of his questions as best I could and as honestly as I could at that moment in time. Um, I remember... Suddenly, he looked at me, and he said, Well, you're an alcoholic, and you need to go into treatment tonight. And I've hated that word ever since I first heard it, um, because it conveyed all of the negatives in life that I never wanted to be. I thought alcoholics were lowlifes. They were losers. They were the dregs of society. They were the bums. They were the non-contributors. There was nothing positive about uh, anything that had to do with the word alcoholic. And yet, strangely enough, and it registered that night, there was no emotional reaction uh, registered within me when he said, you're an alcoholic. Because in the brief period of time from the, the, my time, the time of my arrest to that moment, the only thing I could think of, the only thing my mind was really capable of processing uh, in a cognitive sense was, my life is gone, it's destroyed, and it's because I was in a bar drinking alcohol when I shouldn't. So I, I saw the connection between the devastation and my association with alcohol. I, I, that linked up. And I said to the doctor, I said, you know, I said, I thought you would probably tell me that. And I'm truthfully not resistant to going into treatment. But I said, oh, uh, I just got home. I said, I'd like to go in maybe uh, Monday morning. And I said, I'd really like to go home right now and let Barbara just pull the drapes and just hang on to me. Just please let her let, hang on to me and let my mind uncoil. Let me just ex, let me just absorb what's happened, and then I will go into treatment. And he said, Lyle, you need to go into treatment tonight. And I remember standing there momentarily and looking at him, 
And I thought to myself, you know, why would I come all the way over here if uh, if I wasn't going to do what he said? I also knew that um, uh, based on what I thought was going to occur, I thought I'll never have the money to pay whatever his fee is going to be again either. So, you know, this is, um, you know, I'm, I'm just there. And I paused for a moment. I said, okay. And I looked at that and I thought, well, later I thought that, you know, perhaps that was my very first lesson in willingness. He directed us back across Atlanta to the treatment center. We drove back across there. It was dark. And uh, we turned the final corner to go into a place called Anchor Hospital, which I'd never heard of because they never advertised it. And as we turned, the headlights uh, hit this sign that is no longer there. But I saw very clearly as the headlights hit this sign, it said Anchor Hospital, a hospital for alcoholism and other chemical dependencies. And it's like when we write down things when we're doing step work or we see them in writing, the shock of it really hit me. Hit me right in the gut. And when I saw that sign, I thought, my God, you know, what's happened to me? 51 years old, and this is the way my life ends, in a treatment center for alcoholics. We proceeded on down the hill, and um, I went into Anchor Hospital that evening with the clothes on my back. The uh, following morning, uh, the following morning, I walked outside again with the clothes on my back, and I was in this uh, recreational area, sort of. And I didn't know that this hospital was only five minutes away from the Atlanta airport. And a 727 took off, and I instinctively turned to look at it. And in those in those few moments, it was very close. Um, I I was watching it, and the reality and the realization hit me: you will never fly again. You'll never see the inside of a cockpit again, ever. And I began to get sick, and I swallowed a couple of times, and I turned my back to it, and I walked away. And I walked over and I sat down in some chairs that were out in this recreation area. Now, I didn't know anybody in this place. I didn't want to know anybody. I didn't want them to know me. I just wanted to be alone. But the chairs were spaced about 18 inches or two feet apart, and I saw out of the corner of my eye that there was somebody sitting in the chair to my left. And um, he said, and I didn't know if he was talking to me or talking to anyone for that matter, he said, um, you know, if I only had a year to live, this is where I'd want to be. Now, I'd only been there one night, and um, uh, <laughs> that kind of captured my attention. And I didn't turn to look at him, but I just said, um, oh, really? And um, he said, yeah, because every goddamn day here seems like a year. <laughs> Which apparently, it was his version of one day at a time, I think. That terminated our conversation. And uh, let me, I'm going to stop here, and if I can remember where I was, I'll catch up in a minute. But let me go back. That was kind of what uh, what happened. I kind of changed the order a little bit. But uh, to go back uh, biographically, and uh, I'll tell you, I was uh, born in uh, September 1938 in Wichita, Kansas. Say with the math, I'm 64. Um, I always lose a few people while they get the fingers out. And <laughs> um, both of my uh, parents were alcoholics, which is uh, more people that come up here and tell their stories. I hear that more times than not, or at least one of them is an alcoholic. 
Both of my parents died from this disease. Neither one of them ever found recovery. To my knowledge, uh, they never got to AA. Uh, they may have, but if they did, I didn't know about it. I didn't hear about it, and they didn't stay. We were poor. I grew up in a uh, World War II housing project on the outskirts of Wichita, Kansas, called Plainview. It was where the not very well-to-do folks lived. Uh, uh, there was a Native American community there, and uh, I feel a certain linkage to all of these Irish speakers that have been up here. Uh, one of my grandmothers was Irish. Um, my other grandmother was Comanche Indian, which uh, creates a really interesting drinking combination. <laughs> I think most doctors would uh, conclude has a fairly predictable outcome. <laughs> I was very active in the Native on a mix of a number of things, but those are the, the most notable things. But Bea and I have a very strong uh, um, uh, anchoring point of my Native American identity. I'm very active in those programs that I was when I was growing up. Um, and I, I power out all over Oklahoma and uh, Kansas. And uh, I had vowed, as many of us do, that I would never be an alcoholic. Uh, my parents divorced when I was just barely 14. Uh, within just a matter of a few years, each was divorced and remarried two more times. I bounced from family to family because I would get into a conflict or a clash with someone in that family, and I would go back to the other parent for a brief period of time, stay there, have a, repeat the experience, and go back. And, uh, of course, as this happened, the uh, faces and names changed. I don't remember any of my step-siblings. I don't remember their names. I don't know where they are today. I have no idea if they're dead or alive. Um, <clears throat> but um, I, that was my uh, modus operandi, and uh, I was going through high school at this time. I was a good student when I applied myself, but no one was uh, monitoring anything. Nobody cared. I didn't care. And so I mounted the extreme academic challenge in my um, senior year of three study halls and a typing class and uh, wasted an awful lot of time and a lot of educational opportunities. Uh, I graduated at barely age 17, and um, not many people from the area I came from went to college. I knew college was not in the cards for me. Um, I, I didn't see any way to do it. Uh, the... the uh, this was in 1956. A lot of the folks married their 18-year-old high school sweethearts and went to work for one of the many aircraft factories at headquartered out of Wichita. Um, <clears throat> some joined the service, and that was what I uh, thought about doing. A lot of the folks coming out of Kansas, which is located squarely in the middle of the United States, had this fascination for the water, so they ran out and joined the Navy. Um, there was an Air Force base there. If you joined the Air Force, some went to the uh, Army. Um, about the time I was thinking this over, a friend of mine came back from a Marine boot camp, and he looked really good. Uh, uniform was good. It was square. He and I went to a bar that afternoon and evening, and he regaled me with these masochistic, sadistic horror stories of Marine boot camp. And uh, I suppose if I had known um, Garrett back then, I could have said, let me tell you what I'm thinking. And he just said, God, Lyle, you, you, need, to, you need some therapy. <laughs> because I, couldn't, I just couldn't wait to go down there and, uh, and try this. And uh, <laughs> so I ran right down and signed up. And actually, uh, you know, I, I, had, I had some personal questions as whether or not I could actually do that. And uh, so I went off to Marine Boot Camp December the 5th of 1956, and that was an ironic date because December the 5th of 1990, I would walk into a United States federal prison. <laughs> but, 
excuse me. I left for a Marine boot camp. I spent 13 weeks there. Uh, to my delight and surprise, uh, I found that um, I liked it. Not at first, of course, but uh, I liked it. I uh, had wanted to be anonymous. They made me a squad leader. I didn't like that because it drew attention to me from the drill instructors. But I had done very, very well. At the end of the 13 weeks, I was, um, I was, I uh, had done, I performed very well. It was, um, it was tough. It was disciplined. It was structured. It was a tremendous amount of camaraderie. A lot of esprit de corps there, and I really fit in well. And uh, at the end of that uh, 13-week period, uh, we had 65 or 70 of us, and they promoted three of us to private first class. And I got one set of those stripes, and I was just extraordinarily proud of that. Left and I went to Camp Pendleton for boot camp, I mean for combat training, and um, so I was one of the uh, privileged uh, ranking people there. I would be inside standing corporate the guard when my buddies were outside walking posts in the rain. I was enjoying all of my newfound rank, thought I'm going to be a general for too long because I'm moving up real fast, <laughs> and, uh, and I liked it. I really... Some four years later, I was called in, and there was a new program out called Marine Aviation Cadet Program, by which enlisted personnel were allowed to test for this new flight training program. I had always wanted to fly, but I knew it wasn't in the cards for me because you had to have college education to do that, and uh, that was never going to happen for me. Nonetheless, I went ahead and I took this test. It was an all-day test, and I was told that I had passed it, and if I could pass it, I should complete the 18-month program. I still had some doubts about that, because the guys coming in from the outside had to have two years minimum college. And you heard Tom last night, he had his degree. I knew a lot of those guys were going to come in with their college degrees, and those were the guys that I was going to be competing against. And I had great fear that I was not going to be able to keep up with these fellows. And I hate to fail. I don't handle failure well. I had given this some thought and decided I would go for it. I went home to Wichita about that time. There was a powwow. They had a special dance for me because I was going away. It was a nice thing to do, but it really imprinted me big time because as I drove down to Pensacola, all I could think of was I have a rare opportunity that none of my Indian people are ever going to have, that if I am successful with this, I'm going to get a set of gold wings. I'm going to be a Marine Corps pilot. I'm going to be a commissioned officer, which is really a stretch for me to be able to dream that big because I've always admired and respected these Marine Corps officers that, that I had known up to that point. I went through the flight training program, always full of fear, always working very hard, watching guys wash out all the time around me, pack up and leave with their heads down, dejected, disappointment, disappointed and ashamed. And uh, I completed that flight training program. My final six months, I left Florida. I went to a place called Beaverville, Texas. Went into uh, where I reunited with a whole bunch of my uh, cadet buddies. We got all smashed that night. It was a Friday. It was pre-Vietnam, so we weren't flying on the weekends. And uh, we went into a small drive-in in, in uh, Beaverville, Texas, uh, because the uh, cadet off-duty sport was chasing South Texas girls. And uh, I was never very gutsy or aggressive with the girls, but if I got enough booze in me, I might be. And uh, so I watched them go up to this car and um, uh, talk to these girls. I hung back. I finally walked up because the driver wasn't talking to anyone. And um, I approached her, and she turned and looked at me, and everything that I thought that I was going to say went away. And all I could say was, God, you got the most beautiful brown eyes I've ever seen. And that was it. And she's looking at me, waiting for the next good comment, and I had none. And uh, I'm feeling like a real ass, wishing I hadn't walked up there. And uh, 
her face seems to mirror the same concept, and I turn around and just walked away. And uh, the next day, I uh, was going uh, in town, and I was coming back from town, and I uh, saw her uh, and a girlfriend pull into the same restaurant. They had an indoor restaurant, and I had a buddy with me, and I swung in there real fast and walked in, and feigned surprise, and and I asked if we could buy him a cup of coffee. They said yes, and I got her name, and she said that I could call her, and we began to date. And on February the 25th of 1963, on her 20th birthday, and I'll catch y'all for this later. Um, <laughs> on her 20th birthday, uh, she pinned my gold bars and my gold wings on me. And on March the 9th, uh, we had gone home to Kansas and ran off to Oklahoma and, and got married. And um, I'd like to have the girl with the brown eyes please stand up. <laughs> March the 9th, we'll celebrate number 40. Um, yeah, I, I thought, wow, too. Yeah. One time I was uh, speaking, and I had decided that I wanted to say something kind of funny, because I'm telling this really serious or uh, grim story. And I had heard many stories about uh, multiple marriages, and after this husband and this wife, and because that's what the disease does. It kills relationships before it kills the people in them. Generally, and uh, so I said uh, one time I was saying I said uh, well I'm one of those rare alcoholics that doesn't speak of marriage in multiples, and I was waiting for a laugh. I got about what I got just now, and uh, <laughs> but I thought it was really witty. And uh, Barbara was in the audience, and when we left, she said, "You know when you said that?" And I said, "Yeah." And she said, "Well, I just want you to know one thing: it sure as hell not your fault." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I had no I had no response to that, and then she looked at me. She said, as a "Matter of fact." The only reason I stayed with you is because I can stand to admit I've made a mistake. And, uh, <laughs> but she has written out some pretty tough storms and, uh, and hung in there the whole way. And, uh, so off we went into this Marine Corps career. And, um, and I loved it. I stayed in a, for a total of 11 and a half years in the Marine Corps. I met, uh, Tom Deer in Vietnam. He was in a, a sister squadron over there. And, um, you know, this, I had no idea he'd ever come to this program. I heard a tape one time right after my arrest, just weeks after that or sometime, and I heard his voice choke as he talked about me because I was in the news. And he says, God, God bless him, God, or God love him, something to that effect. I, I sure hope he finds this program. And I was very touched by that. And I was in the program, but I was also in, in, in some deep, dire straits at that point. We, um, we immediately had two boys, two kids, eight days less than a year apart. And unlike the CIA folks here, the Catholic Irish alcoholics, I am not Catholic. And uh, I was just a Protestant who had very little idea of what birth control was all about. And uh, we had these two boys, and off I went to Vietnam when they were six months old and 18 months old. Through some missions over there. I uh, was with an excellent squadron, just a fine squadron. I'm sure Tom thinks his was the best that was going to. That's the way it was built, and that's the way I, I thought. Came home with some medals and ribbons and stuff like that, and um, I managed to get a, a, a regular commission over there, which was very competitive. I didn't think there was any way a high school graduate was going to get a regular commission, and I got one while I was in Vietnam. But I came, I began to look at this, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to be away from my family for between four and six years if I stay with this career that I just dearly, dearly love. And my family has always come first, and I have always said my family will never be like the one I grew up in. And my family is going to be solid, safe, secure. And they're going to have a stay-at-home mom that's going to be there all the time for them, and, and they're going to be loved and, and, and know that. 
And um, I finally sat down in a very painful, anguished moment, and I wrote my letter of resignation. And I really hated to do that. I really hated to get out of the Marine Corps. Two weeks after I'd gotten out of the Marine Corps, on July 15th of 68, on August the 5th of 68, I was sitting in class at Northwest Airlines. And for almost 22 years, I had the same kind of a career there and the same kind of a reputation that I had built in the Marine Corps. I was very proud of my accomplishments. I had a lot of things that were that were pretty neat that had happened to me in the Marine Corps that I liked and I enjoyed and I was very proud of. And the same thing was true of the airline. And when this thing hit, it just it just destroyed me. It absolutely destroyed me. Uh, we had, after we had gone with the airline, uh, Barbara and I had talked about adopting a child even before we got married. And shortly after we got to Minneapolis with the airlines, I said, let's either do it or quit talking about it. So for 14 months, we waged a, a large fight. Because we had two natural children, we were right on the cusp of the time when they didn't want to allow us to adopt. But we waged this incredible fight to adopt this little girl. And uh, they called us one day and, and said, we have this little Indian girl for you. She's 17 days old. And we're going to allow her to come home and live with you. I was out of work on a strike, as a matter of fact. And uh, they said, as hard as you guys have fought to get this little girl, we're not going to let something like that um, stop us from placing her in your home. So we brought this little girl home. thought it would be a neat thing for Barbara. She now had a daughter. I had the two boys. and But I didn't know, of course, was that daughters just absolutely steal their father's hearts. I didn't know that at all. But she was a beautiful little girl. And uh, could not walk past me at any point in time in, in, in her years growing up and without me saying, Don, come over and give me a hug. She'd come over and give me a hug, and, and I'd say, thanks for being my girl. And she'd say, thanks for being my dad. And I love this little girl so much. Uh, I had been off getting captain because she was my last child at home. And uh, she became a senior in high school. I said, it's my time. And uh, so I told Barbara, I'm going to Chicago to take a special test so that I can uh, now become a captain. And um, the afternoon that Barbara took me in, uh, unbeknownst to either her or I, Don had made some plans and she ran away. Uh, I do not know if I would have seen that coming had I not been drinking. Um, I've thought about that a lot, and I don't know. Uh, I may have, I may not have. I don't. I just don't know. But I called home the, the second day I was getting ready to come home, and when Barbara answered the phone, I knew some, all she said was hello, and I knew something was wrong. And I demanded that she tell me what was wrong. She told me Don had run away. And I blurted out these panicked instructions of where to go, who to call, where to look. And I got on the airplane. It was a two-and-a-half-hour flight from Chicago to Atlanta. And by the time I landed, all of that had changed. Everything changed. And I hated her worse than anything I, I had never hated anything or anyone that bad. And so when I came in, I said, forget it. She's never coming home again. And not only that, I never want to hear a name mentioned within my family again, not to me. And within two days, I had cleared the house of everything she owned. All of her furniture was gone. I'd given it to a, a goodwill organization. I had found some things that she had made for me through the years that I uh, deeply treasured and cherished, little girl projects in school that I'd kept. And I smashed them and broke them and threw them away. I went to the bank and I ripped up her adoption papers. I went to an attorney and I paid him $500 and I disowned her. I tried to annul the adoption and could not do that. And I, I don't know what my face looked like any time her name came up, but no one ever approached the subject twice with me. And um, so this, in, in the midst of doing all of this, I was looking around 
And um, uh, because I'm so perceptive, I decided that Barbara was having a real hard time handling this. And, uh, and she needed some help. I was okay, but she needed some real help. So we had called a family therapist, just pulled his name out of the yellow pages in the phone book, and we had seen him uh, just about every week for two years. And he was the doctor that I called on the morning that I came home uh, after the arrest. He, uh, one of the things he said to me on our very first visit uh, uh, I thought was really kind of uh, bizarre. Uh, we had gone in with this introductory visit just to tell him uh, why we were going to be coming to see him. And as we were leaving, he said, as long as I'm seeing the two of you, I don't want either of you drinking. We had, now, we had not talked about drinking. It hadn't even come up. And uh, I was uh, really taken aback by that. I thought it was really bizarre. And Barb and I got in the car, and I said, uh, what are you thinking meant by that? And she said, I don't know. And, um, uh, you know, to be an airline pilot, you've got to have a very quick, decisive, analytical, after all this stuff, mind. And so I immediately put it to work, and I said, well, he obviously means on the day we're coming. And, uh, <laughs> which made perfect sense to me. Made perfect sense to me, so it solved that problem. And I never drank on the day we were going in there, which was usually in the mornings. We, um, this guy was a, was a gifted therapist, a gifted therapist. I did not like talking about my daughter. And um, we never talked about drinking. Never. And, and I've got to tell you honestly, I never tried to hide it. I never thought it was a problem. I never thought I was an alcoholic. So I had no reason to hide the subject of alcohol. It just simply was irrelevant. He said to me one day, we were talking about my daughter, and a statement threw out of my, my mouth that uh, surprised even me. And I still think about it today because I had never formed the thought consciously that I was aware of. He said something to me about my daughter, and I said, I'm going to tell you something, doctor. I'd rather hate than hurt. And he was uh, sitting very close to me, and he said, Lyle, he said, you survived a childhood using that, but he said, if you continue, it'll destroy you. And I didn't respond to him verbally, but I remember sitting and looking at him, and I'm thinking, well, you may be a Ph.D. family therapist, but by God, I'm an airline pilot, and, uh, and I'll do it my way. Later, later, in a session, he said to me, he said, you know, he said, every time you had one of these family chaos situations, and there had been a lot of it even before my family uh, split, he said, the thing you experienced most was abandonment and betrayal. Now, I had never labeled anything like that. I had never consciously thought that. But the minute he said those words, that was exactly what I had thought and felt, abandonment and betrayal. And he said, and now, he said, the, the person you love more than anyone in the world has left you, and you're going through it all over again. So it takes a tremendous amount of hatred and rage and anger to block that pain. And that was what I did. That was the way I never faced pain, honestly. I blocked it. If I could get angry enough, I would never feel the pain, because I was too consumed with the anger. So um, we had seen this man, and... and um, and I had listened a lot to him, but I wasn't moving. I wasn't going anywhere. Later, he said, there was no chance that your family would ever heal. There was no chance. He said, it was in my notes. You know, you were too unbending, too unyielding. You were just not flagging. You weren't going to change anything. So, 
after I went into the treatment center and um, had my little introductory discussion with the guy sitting next to me, in which I was getting my one day at a time intro, um, I had a very intense uh, treatment experience there. The, uh, uh, in the early days, the first few days, I can tell you I experienced so much pain that it exceeded any level of human threshold that I thought we had. There was pain and shame, and I just couldn't believe that I had done what I had done and that, that my life was ending this way. And I became suicidal, and I didn't think that I had the capacity to do that. A lot of people who knew me thought I was pretty tough and pretty hard. And even to this day, when I talk about it with some of them, they doubt seriously that I was really serious about it. But I was way beyond the the, the, the thinking, romancing, floating with it. I was going to do this. All I knew was I wanted the pain to end. I just wanted the pain to end. And uh, someplace in that process, as I was thinking about this or figuring out how, what I was going to do, uh, I had some kind of a God-given moment of clarity. And I said, you know, the thought came in and said, if you do this thing, it's the only thing that will exceed what's already happened. Your family will never survive this. The scarring, the stigma of your suicide will be something they will never recover from. And someplace in that 28-day process, and I don't know where it was, I began to think more about living than dying. And I can't tell you where it was. I've looked back and tried to tried to figure out where that might have been, and I can't can't come up with anything. But I, I, I want, you know, the only time I thought about suicide was in Vietnam when I or tried to wrestle with the idea of whether or not I'd allow myself to be captured if I was shot down. And I never resolved that. And uh, as I'm in this particular phase of uh, everything, all of a sudden we began to get, now the media has it, I'm all over television, every patient in the hospital knows who I am and what I am, so my anonymity is gone. Um, the um, Someplace in the, and then it comes to legal consequences. Nobody knew about legal consequences when I went in there. It had been announced on the television a week after I entered that Northwest had fired me, and they should have. It was a fair thing to do. Based on what I did, they were absolutely justified in firing me. And my medical certificate from the FAA had been pulled because of the diagnosis of alcoholism. I'm a firm believer in acceptance of personal responsibility. I don't believe that anyone, this is my side, my personal slant, no one who has a quality level of recovery that I know of considers themselves a victim. It's my belief, it's my belief that that's a matter of choice. I can be a victim. I can die that way. But it's, it depends upon the attitude I choose. It strictly depends upon the attitude I choose. The, um, in the second week that I was in treatment, the good thing about all of this was that I was so destroyed that I had no will to resist. None. So when the doctors and the counselors worked with me, I tried to do everything they told me. I didn't debate, resist, argue, intellectualize, try to figure it out. I, I didn't understand a lot of it. I didn't understand a whole lot of it. But I knew that my answers were no longer working. They hadn't worked because of where I was. So I, I, I worked as hard in, in, in uh, treatment as I had in flight training. I truly did. And uh, I tried to take to heart everything that they told me. But suddenly here came legal consequences. And these things came. There were six legal crises in there. We had no visitors, no phone calls, but they were having to come tell me the latest legal bad news because it had a direct effect on on, on me. And it became it, it just became unbearable. Each one was worse. And every time they would take me out of the room and take me in, there was just like somebody sucked me out of the room, and I couldn't breathe. 
because of the, the grimness and the severity of what was taking place. And I would take me two or three days to settle in and, and, and work to some degree of acceptance on this thing. On the, uh, on the second week that I was in, I was in a group, and I didn't intend to talk, didn't intend not to talk, but for whatever reason, they closed the door, and there were eight or ten of us, and I began to talk about my daughter. First time I'd ever done that. And I broke down and cried. And I uh, didn't think that was okay. I had not even cried at my parents' funerals. Uh, it was not okay to cry, I didn't think. And uh, I broke down and I sobbed about my daughter. And it was, just, it was, it was like she, she had just pulled my whole heart right out of my chest. And, and, and when I cried and I was, I felt, then I felt so naked and so embarrassed and so vulnerable that everyone was looking at me in this group. And um, I felt like I had no clothes on. And, and um, But it was one of the greatest things that happened to me in treatment. It was like somebody lanced this incredibly abscessed, poisonous boil inside of me, and I could now begin to heal. And within a week or so, I had contacted Barbara, and I said, see if you can find Dawn. She knew where she was, and tell her I want to see her. The treatment center thought this was such an impossible, amazing breakthrough for me that they said, we'll allow her to come out and see you. So she came up from uh, Florida. She had gotten married. I hadn't seen her for two years. I didn't know what her last name was. She had a five-month-old baby. I didn't know anything about it except what Barbara had leaked to me, and uh, and I didn't want to know anything about it. And I met this little five-month-old granddaughter who stole my heart as fast as my daughter had in the the room of a treatment center. I looked at my daughter and I had forgotten that she was so small. I didn't remember that. And I can't even begin to tell you what it felt like to put my arms around her and tell her how much I loved her instead of how much I hated her. And um, so we, we healed that relationship. You know, life goes on and we've had some other problems and struggles. The program of Alcoholics Anonymous has allowed us to deal with that and move past things and to accept things and and um, I shared with Tom earlier, you know, that we just keep on with some of these family struggles. But at least we have a program that we can now work with. I, it's not my way or the highway. It's not, uh, if you don't do it my way, I hate you. And, uh, and I've, I've, got a, I've, got a, I've got the ability to accept and to allow someone else to live their own journey. And that their journey is not my journey. The final legal crisis came, and, they, um, and I was flinchy. Every time they would uh, open a door, I was in a group, I just knew they were going to take me out, and I was almost always right. And the, the final time they took me out, and they took me down to a doctor's office, and they said, we have to tell you that a federal grand jury has just indicted you. You're looking at uh, 15 years in federal prison, a $250,000 fine, and an attorney's coming in Sunday months $50,000, which I didn't even remotely have. And I remember it was like every nerve in my body just shut down. I just went numb. And the doctor said, I have to ask you if you're going to do anything to hurt yourself. And I said, no. I went back to my room, and I couldn't stay still. It was like that first night after the arrest. I just couldn't stay still. And I looked out the window, and I sat on the bed, and I splashed some water on my face. And I tried to get a drink of water. I don't remember collapsing, but I remember, uh, I don't remember the actual fall. But I do remember lying face down on the carpet in my room, crying. And I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I just have nothing left. I can't do this anymore. You know, please help me. And I slept that night for the first time. I remember sleeping that night. I got out of treatment, and I came back up to Minnesota for the trial. It was a very public three-week trial. And everywhere I went, there were reporters. And I had invested very, 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 very heavily in, in this 12-step program. I, I knew early on. First of all, I knew it was going to be mandatory prison. No suspended sentences, no probation. It was going to be mandatory prison. And I knew 
It was clear to me that the only way I was going to survive this was totally dependent on how well I embraced this program and how well I understood it and could work it under these conditions. So I had invested very heavily in it. And I would see these reporters standing by or coming at me, and I would silently mantra the serenity prayer over and over and over and over. And they would stick mics in my face and cameras in my face, and it was just like the old Indian thing of running the gauntlet, you know, to go through these people, to get in and out of the courtrooms. And we went through this trial. I had a phenomenal experience with an attorney that I would really like to tell you about, and in the interest of time, I cannot. But he was an amazing man, and I knew he had a losing case from the get-go, and I told him so, and I told him, well, however this works out, it's going to be okay. And they called us in for the verdict, which came in very quickly, and uh, I saw him stiffen when they called my name with a guilty guilty finding, and I just reached over and I patted him, and I said, it's okay, it's okay. We went back some months later for sentencing. The, the sentencing guidelines call for 12 months minimum, 18 months maximum. I was the captain. I knew I was going to get 18 months. I'd settled on that. But in the interim period of time, I'd had two dreams that were very vivid, <clears throat> separated a little bit in time, but very vivid and identical, in which I stood there, as real as it could be, looking at this judge as he became ready to impose a sentence. And instead of saying 18 months, he said five years. And both times I woke up just scared stiff. Scared stiff. And I had not shared that with Barbara. And we walked into my attorney's office a day and a half before sentencing. He said, I gotta show you a letter from the judge. He's going to up the ante. The thing that, the thing that doubled the element of terror in that was that the prosecutor had not asked for that. I had watched this judge and I knew this judge was, was not, uh, not happy with all three of us at all. That this was a horrendous betrayal of the public trust. So I didn't, I didn't, uh, begrudge him that. I understood that. I didn't blame him for that. But this was something he wanted to do. So it wasn't going to be a matter of one or two more months. He was going to up the ante considerably. <clears throat> I felt that old familiar penetration of terror that goes all the way to my bone marrow. And Barbara and I walked out of the office and I said, this is, this is step one all over again. I'm powerless over this. This is a matter of acceptance. This is a let go and let God thing. This is the serenity prayer until it begins to work all over again. We walked into the courtroom for sentencing. I did not think I would be coming out because of the nature of the way the trial had gone and the, the personality of the judge that was involved. So I gave Barbara my personal effects. I kissed her and I went through the defendant's area and said, I don't think I'll be coming back. The, um, the, um, to my surprise, he said, um, this is a complex legal case. It's a first-of-its-kind ever case. I know there are going to be appeals. Well, let me go back. Let me stop. He, um, I was the first to speak. And I had been so scared that I couldn't come up with anything. And I had worked feverishly for a day and a half to try to think of something to say when it was my turn to talk. And I couldn't come up with anything. I was that scared. And even as I stood to speak, I didn't know what I was going to say. My prayer had simply been, God, let me say something from the heart and please let me get it out. Because I have a hostile judge, a hostile jury. I've got rows of media over here that are sketching my picture. And please let me say something from the heart. And I talked about the fact that I was grateful to be sober. That I was grateful for the good things that had happened inside my family. 
that I accepted responsibility, that I couldn't change what had happened the day before, much less what had happened months before. And I simply accepted the responsibility for that. And to my complete surprise, he announced a sentence of 16 months, two months less under the guidelines, and this had already been leaked to the media. He announced a sentence of 16 months. And it wasn't like I was anxious to go dancing off in the prison and do 16 months, but it was a lot better than what I was looking for. The irony of that is I'd been in treatment with a judge who was a federal judge, and he says, we never change the sentence from the bench. We never do that. And that was a miracle that morning that somehow or other touched that judge's heart, and he did what he did. Um, he told us, he said, um, I know there will be appeals because of the complexity of this case. I'm going to allow you to stay out, you three gentlemen, to stay out until the appeals are exhausted. The other two chose to do that. I did not. I said, uh, I had learned in here that we, we deal with life on life's terms, one day at a time on life's terms. To stay out was whistling in the dark. And I said, I want to go in and get it over with. And my kids were scared, and I was scared, and I said, the reality is I can't come out the back door until I go in the front. And I'm going in the front. So I did. I left, and I went to prison. And uh, I had a lot of prison experiences in there. I don't talk about them. Um, I don't think they have any place in my story. Uh, I think the recovery part of it has an awful lot to do with how I handle prison. But I'm going to pass on most of that. And uh, the only thing I've ever said about that is that there are two groups of uh, really sick people in prison, and the sickest group goes home every night. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, and I tell you what, I... <laughs> I'll tell you what, I always issue a caveat, and I say I exclude anybody who's in that system that's in this fellowship. And I've met a dear man here, there's a friend of Tom's and sitting over here who works in corrections and does everything he can to help inmates. And he certainly doesn't belong in that category, and I want to make that clear. But what I saw was, was very much that, without exception. Also made 12 cents an hour in there, and there was no 401k retirement plan, and that was a little disconcerting. But anyway... I came out of there, I'd been stripped of everything. We were broke within the first month of this thing. Financially, we were wiped out. Everything I'd worked 51 years to acquire was gone, had been gone since the first month. I had nothing. I'd been stripped. The FAA, in the meantime, also had issued a public revocation of my licenses, which was fair. They should have done that. I wasn't fit to hold them. I was the most notorious pariah in aviation. Everyone in commercial aviation knew about Northwest Flight 650 and me. There was no way that I was ever, and I had a high school education with nothing to fall back on. No college degree, nothing. I didn't know what I was going to do. Someplace in a meditation book, though, I had read something that said before there could ever be a dream, before any dream could ever come true, there must first be a dream. So I began to dream about flying again. And as I began to check into it, I had a tremendous amount of support of Northwest among the pilots and flight attendants. And as I began to check into it, uh, an airline pilot association attorney went to the FAA, and he says, the FAA says, if you want to fly again, you'll have to start all over at the very beginning with a private license. My hope had been that since I had the highest license they issued, which in and of itself was considered to be impossible to reattain, nobody I knew, nobody I knew thought it was possible to go back and get that license over again. Nobody had ever indicated that they thought it was a doable deal. But then they tell me, if you want to do it, you start with a private license. And that really decked me for a couple of days. I just had to sit still and breathe in and breathe out. But I've learned to do things in here one day at a time, one thing at a time. I've learned that if I cannot drink one day at a time in here, I can do virtually anything one day at a time. 
I've learned that through this program. And so I reframed this thing because if I had looked at the panorama of everything out there, I wouldn't even attempted it, especially in view of the fact that, that none of my friends thought it was, it was doable. So I went back and I got four of those licenses. I passed the written. So I had no shortcuts, nothing quick, nothing easy. And I did it the old-fashioned way. I, I had to work my way through all of them. I looked at the flying part, and it was going to take ten dollars to $20,000 to do it. I had been broke. I had gotten out of prison, and I had gone back to work in the treatment center that had saved my life. I was working there with alcoholics and addicts in the counseling department. I was making six seventy-five an hour. There was no way I could do this. About that time, I got a phone call from a Northwest pilot who had a flight school that I did not know anything about. And he said, I want you to come up here and live with me and go through my flight school, free of charge. I had to coordinate. I had 13 conditions of probation that I was on for uh, uh, 13 or for three years. I had to hook this up and coordinate it. I went up there. I flew 78 hours and 30 days in Minneapolis, and I got four licenses back. I got two of them in one day. And I don't think that's ever been done before. And uh, and I went home, and uh, still there was no way I was ever going to fly again on the face of the planet. No one was going to hire me. No one. Anywhere. And... Um, I came home, and three months later, as my licenses arrived in the mail, I got a phone call from the head of the pilot union at Northwest. And I had not resisted my termination. I had not fought it or mounted any kind of a legal challenge because I thought they were right to fire me. He said to me, he said, this is the best phone call I have ever made because three hours ago, John Dasberg, the president and CEO of Northwest Airlines, personally reinstated you to flight status. This was not quite four years after all of this had happened. The, air, the airline that I had so horribly disgraced and embarrassed, and the president of the airline saw fit to bring me back. I went back, and I signed a back-to-work agreement, a last-chance agreement. I was never to be a captain again. I said, that's fine. I could care less. I couldn't believe that I was being restored to some level of honor and dignity and being allowed to go back and fly with my peers and the people that I had so horribly shamed and disgraced. But the miracles just keep coming in this program. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen because every miracle that's taken place, I said, there can never be one that's any greater than that one. Nothing can ever exceed that. And as I was approaching my final year at Northwest, I was speaking at United Airlines, and um, it was late at night, and the same pilot called me, and no longer head of the pilot union, but he said, uh, you're not going to believe this. John Dasberg has changed his mind. He thinks you ought to be a 747 captain. I couldn't believe it. I lay there for the longest time in the dark, didn't know if Barbara was awake yet or not. And it was like the face of God was smiling down on me and winking and saying, every time you think I've used up my miracles, I can show you one more. <laughs> and um, so I went back and I, can, I, I did the checkout and I concluded my final year at Northwest as a Boeing 747 captain. I left there with a greater reputation and greater status than I'd ever had before. I had been fully reinstated. The circle that we and that we talk about in the Indian community, this sacred circle, had been completed again in another form and fashion. The judge, this judge who had harbored such hostile feelings towards me and the others, and rightfully so, over the years has become one of, if not the strongest supporter I've ever had. And in 98, he said to me, he knew I was an avid hunter and outdoorsman, and I'd lost all those rights because of a felony conviction. He said, Lyle, he said, if you want to, through my attorney, he said, if you want to make the attempt for a presidential pardon, I will support it, and I have never supported a petition for pardon ever in my career. I thought, what are the chances of a presidential pardon? One in 10,000? I thought, well, hell, what are the chances I'd fly again? One in a million. 
So I went after it, and I started it in January of 99, two years of very exhaustive work. I didn't do it like some of the Americans did that you may have read about that got some shortcuts along the way. <laughs> I did all the paperwork. I dotted the I's, crossed all the T's, went through two years, and on January the 20th, this judge wrote a three-page affidavit that I cannot to this day have never been able to pick up and read from page one to page three without tearing up. I can't believe the things this man says about me in this affidavit. And um, on January the 20th of 2001, I came walking into eight messages on my phone machine, all of them excitedly bursting out, the last, the last pardon list is out, and you, you have received a presidential pardon. A huge thing, huge thing in the life of a convicted felon. Some of you have commented to me, and so I'm going to make, I'm going to talk about this a second. The, um, in 98, a number of people had pushed me to uh, write my story for the big book. And frankly, I didn't want to do it. I was very resistant, and I kept dragging my feet. It, it began to get so awkward and embarrassing that I finally told my wife, I said, the easier, softer way is to do it, then I don't have to worry about who I'm going to run into. So I sat down, I wrote the story, and I sent it off in 98. They said it'll take about three years. I said, I don't care. I just wanted to get it out of the way so I could tell these people I'd done it. I had no expectation that, that it was going to be published. In May of 01, three months later, or whatever it is, uh, I get a letter from a GSO in New York. I had no idea what the letter was about. No idea at all. I had not even hooked it up with the, with the submission of the story. And I open it up, the second sentence says, we're pleased to inform me that your story has been selected for the fourth edition of the Big Book. And I thought, my God, this just keeps happening. You know, this just keeps happening. I didn't tell anybody about it, except I did call my former counselor, the guy that had been with me when this firestorm of stuff was coming down about me. The counselor in treatment, good old Southern boy by the name of Ed. I love him to death, except when he picks up the phone, he says, this is Ed. And uh, <laughs> it gets two syllables out of somehow. <laughs> so I called him. He's the only one I called, and I said, Ed, you're not going to believe this. And I read him that sentence, and, said, and he said, God Almighty. He said, my God Almighty. He said, he said, you remember when we was there in uh, treatment and all that stuff was just coming down around you that's like rain? And I said, oh, yeah, I remember. And um, he said, remember, I kept telling you, man, if you can stay sober, this is going to make a hell of a book. <laughs> Which I didn't find particularly comforting. I said, yeah, I remember that, too. He said, well, God dang. He said, I didn't mean the book. <laughs>